Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we pray for our upcoming Sunday school year. God, we do pray that you will help each teacher. God, anoint them to teach and lay down the foundations of the faith. God, we pray for all the young people in this church. We thank you for all the young people in this church. God, we pray that you will raise up many, many that will become real warriors in your army. Lord, I pray now for your leading and guiding by your Holy Spirit as we share the word that you have put in my heart for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you know my wife very well, and you've heard me whine a few times about it, you know that she likes to go camping and hiking. And one of the places we went was this wilderness area, Bridger Wilderness Areas out by the Teton Mountains, the Tetons out in Wyoming. Beautiful, phenomenal place, unbelievable trails, unbelievable wildlife. That's all kind of where Luke called the moose in when he was just a little twerp. He did, you want to do that for us, Luke? No? Okay. Seriously, he's doing this. We're laughing at him, and here comes two moose. Cindy's freaking out, and I'm saying, Luke, run. And she's saying, Luke, stand still. And Luke just sat there and said, what do you do? But we had a great time, and it's beautiful. But I want to share with you some actual comment cards that were filled out by visitors at the Bridger Wilderness area. Now, when we were there, it's kind of amazing because, you know, we're out there and we're sort of hikers, so we've kind of got on hiking shoes and some kind of backpacks and we're dressed sort of accordingly. Not like the real hardcore hikers, but we're, you know, we're not, we don't look too weird to a hiker. <laughs> but you see people. I remember this one trail where, where there's, there's these ladies in their skirts and they're, they're cute, pretty, expensive sandal-type shoes, you know, with all the straps on their shoes. And, and they're walking and high heels. Can you imagine high heels? And they're walking and their husbands have got on little penny loafers and they look so cool. Not on a mountain, but they do look cool. So some people just, I don't know, they don't get it, right? Well, here's some of the comment cards. First one, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Makes perfect sense. Please pave the trails. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to those wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyotes made way too much noise last night and they kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Amazing. I love the next one. I can see my mother-in-law saying this. Small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can get reimbursed? Please call. (laughs) Go figure. Then the last three escalators would help on some steep uphill sections. McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Amen. And too many rocks in these mountains. Now you'd like to think there were some people like my son that are giving sarcastic, funny comments. But you know, there probably are. But the reality is some of those people don't get it. At all. At all. And it seems absurd to you and I that if we kind of do understand the wilderness experience. Well, when you look at these people, really what they're saying is, if there's truth to their comments at all, is we have no clue what it means to stay in a wilderness area. And we would like to see all the beauty and have all the benefits of being in this beautiful area without any of the work. You know, kind of like, bring it to me, would you please? And in a similar way, sadly, in a similar way, a lot of people who call themselves Christians are like this. They really don't understand what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
any more than some people truly understand what it means to go hiking in a wilderness area. They think they understand, and they might even look like they sort of get it. They might go to church. Um, They might clap or raise their hands. They might even give a little money in the offering. They might do all these things and, and look like Christians, and they think they're Christians, but the reality is they're there, and they want the benefits without the cost. And as soon as there's any cost... They're gone. Now, I'm not saying that's us, but it could be. I know there's times in my life that I know what I'm doing is not the thing that a disciple of Jesus Christ should be doing. I know that my thoughts aren't what the thoughts should be of a man who loves the Lord. My behavior, all of these things, I know it and I do it anyway. Now, that is not truly a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus... You know, I, I, I'm going to tell you this as we look at the Scripture. What I'm going to share with you, I'm going to share right out of the Bible because I don't want you to not like me. My insecurities get all carried away. But you're not going to like some of the things Jesus says. I'll tell you that right up front. You know, I heard this phrase again this week from somebody who heard it from some people in our community. Praise God, they're still talking about us. They made reference to that cult out there at victory again. I just love it when I hear that. Because that means we stand out and we aren't what looks like normal. And you know, a cult, that term a cult has a very negative connotation these days because it's usually used to talk about a group of people that are out of the norm or based on falsehoods. But really the term originally means simply a cult is a group of people that follow an individual or a group of teachings like being a Christian. It's a cult. We are a cult if we're Christians. We are sold out followers of Jesus Christ and we follow his teachings, no matter what. The difference between the cult I'm talking about, boy, I can just hear the conversation this week. Just keep, your, keep this quiet, okay? When people talk about a cult, the thing that differentiates what they're talking about and who we should be is we are a cult based on truth, not a lie. That is the big difference. And when you listen to Jesus describe what it means to be a follower, a disciple, you're going to see that he has some high expectations. And it's going to cost, but people don't get it. The Pew Research Survey of over 35,000 people, and this won't be new to most of you, but over 35,000 people, and this was a very detailed survey. I'm just going to throw out the broad picture. They said in 2007, 78.4% of Americans claimed to be Christians. 78.4, almost 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. And I went and looked at a number of more recent surveys done by Gallup and Rasmussen, and the numbers range in that 78 to 82%. So in America, if you ask people, are you a Christian, 82% or 80% people say yes. Well, I could say they don't get it, but that would just be me talking in my opinion, and you might think I'm being critical and judgmental. (laughs) I am. Multitudes of these people define it any way they want to. That's the problem. If you defined, are you a Christian, 
and you use the biblical definition, boy, would the percentage change. But if you just say, are you a Christian, and I put whatever definition I want in my mind, I can easily say yes. I'm a Christian. I try to be nice. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I'm a Christian for whatever reason. And if they happen to line up with the Word of God, that's good, but most of the time they don't have anything to do with what's in the Word of God. And that's the problem. And the Gallup survey taken just in 2011, so this is just you know, about two, two years ago, only 30% of Americans, 80% say they're Christian, only 30% of Americans say that the Bible is to be taken literally. And 49%, I believe was the number, say the Bible is the inspired of word of God, but, now that word just doesn't fit in that sentence. The Bible is the inspired word of God, but, but what? It either is or it isn't. The Bible is not the inspired word of God, but that it should not be taken literally. Really? What part? Thou shalt not kill? Should we take that literally? Honor your mother or your father, should we take that literally? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, should we take that literally? How do we pick and choose what to take? So you can see the problem is, you know, 30% think it should be taken literally. 49%, well, it is the inspired word of God. Thank you, God, but we know better than you. We, we can't really take it literally. And they can say whatever they want to about being a Christian. What does God say? about being a Christian. What does Jesus say about being a Christian? Jesus is the follower. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Christians, that's where the term comes from. We're going to look at that. If being a Christian or being a disciple isn't defined by the Bible, do what you want with it. That's how we can all get by and say, yes, we are. Well, the reality is, I think there's a whole lot of people that have a profession of faith, read their Bibles, give an offering. They're not the real deal. At the very least, they're not living or thinking like the real deal. I can't judge any man's heart, neither can you. So when I say they're not the real deal, I don't know for sure. But I can say with certainty, and Jesus himself tells us, you'll know them by their fruit. Judge them. Judge their behavior. So they're not, not thinking and living like the real deal. Now, before I look at our text, I want to give us a biblically defined disciple Christian. Disciple Christian, those two words. The word disciple occurs about 270 sometimes in the New Testament. The word Christian only occurs about three times in the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 11, it says this, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So basically, in the New Testament, a disciple is a Christian. A follower of Jesus Christ is a Christian when he refers to the disciples. Now, if you want to read this section of Scripture and, and put it into words that our culture would be more familiar with, you know, we don't call people disciples much. But we throw around the term Christian a lot, right? Put the word Christian in there once, and you're going to think Jesus is really, really being hard on us. Because he is. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start with verse 25. Jesus is, his popularity has just been rising. 
People have been following him, listening to his teaching, being amazed by him. The religious people are already getting a little upset with him. Um, wherever he goes, people follow. People are coming. And here it says in, in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, it says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I think it will help bring it to a, a, a words that we can understand instead of the way we normally think of a term, for example, like hate. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and he said to them, If you want to be my disciples, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be my disciples, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Otherwise, you cannot be a Christian. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Boy, he's being pretty blunt, isn't he? And there's a few things we need to look at here. First of all, notice who's Jesus speaking to. He's not talking to a bunch of religious people who want to kill him. He's not talking about a people standing there armed with stones ready to stone him. He's talking to people that are his followers. They're following him around. They're mesmerized by the guy's teaching. They can't hardly wait to hear more. They've seen some miracles. They're following him. So these are people that are friendly to Jesus. And notice, Jesus turns to them. Nothing that we can see in here happened to cause him to do this. It's just like you see Jesus walking around and the crowds are all over the place. And they're following him in mass. And finally he just stops. And he turns to all these people and he says these words that we just read. Boy, that would cause you to take a step back, wouldn't it, if you're one of those following him? So it's not people that are antagonistic towards Jesus at all. Their attitude towards him is positive. And I bet if you went and asked them, are you followers of Jesus, most of them would have probably said, yes, we are followers of Jesus. But in all likelihood, they were very casual followers of Jesus, not very committed followers of Jesus. Most of you, if you've been here for the last year, you know we did a series called I Am Not a Fan. And the whole premise of that series was I am not a fan of Jesus Christ. I remember the first day I introduced it, people looked at me like, "Uh uh-oh, Mike's finally really lost it. But the premise was we're not fans of Jesus Christ, we are committed followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on a cross for fans. He died on a cross for committed followers. He doesn't care if there's people in the stadium cheering him on. Because he knows as soon as you lose the game, they start booing you. Or as soon as you say something difficult or hard, the people start leaving you. It got so bad once in John chapter 6, he turns and says, you all leaving? Turned even to his 12 and he says, you guys going too? Went from a mega crowd to being the loneliest man. He knew followers are what are necessary. That's what he's looking for. These were probably fans, not followers. If the cost wasn't too high, they were there. If I can go see that waterfall in the mountains and there's an escalator taking me there, I'm in. What do you mean I've got to walk seven miles up a hill? I'm not going. There's no waterfall that beautiful. 
Jesus is laying this out. He is setting the ground to say, you know what? Following me is going to cost you. His message really isn't an emotional thing. You, you, know, you need to hate like we think of hate. Back in those days, hate basically was a comparative term. And that's why I like the New Living Translation. In comparison to Jesus, everything else fails. What the whole premise of Jesus' topic and conversation here is, is commitment. Commitment, commitment, commitment. That's why even as Casey's talking about Sunday school, one of the, the, the things that's destroying our culture today is there's no commitment. Nobody's committed to anything. I mean, I used to get excited when people volunteer to do something until I realized they never show up. I used to get excited when people would lead this or do that till it's never done. And that's in a, the church situation. And in our culture, that thing is commitment is just gone. And that's what Jesus is addressing here over 2,000 years ago. Level of commitment. In comparison to me, everyone else is back there. I need to be the number one thing in your life. Period. So his message is simple. To be my disciple, you need to be committed to me above everything else. And notice he says, if you want to follow me. It's not like he's talking about an elite group of, of uh, um, uh, secret agents in his, in his army or something like that. This isn't some group that's going to be highly, highly trained. He's just anybody. If you want to be my follower, this is it. Whoever you are, whatever you do, this is it. It's anyone, everyone. This is how you got to, what you have to do to follow me. Level of commitment. Family, doesn't matter. Then he says your own life. And I believe you can take that physically and as a lifestyle. People will, will be glad to follow Jesus until it starts getting into their lifestyle. You shouldn't live this way. What's wrong with living that way? Well, you know, Jesus said, well, I, don't, I don't care. I remember, if you've been around Bowden for years and years and years, you remember one time there was a school board issue because they wanted to have baccalaureate prayer at their uh, a prayer at commencement, and people didn't want it, and it was ugly. They wanted to throw prayer out, and they ended up, we, it did. And about three or four of us from this very church were in on that school board. And I remember going through this, and, and I had one person who was very influential because they were writing a whole lot of articles in the newspaper. Came to me one-on-one. I thought, great. Mike, where are you coming from on this deal? I said, you know what? I believe the Bible says, just stop right there. I don't care what the Bible says. Oh, yeah, well, that person was a Christian by whatever definition she wanted. But when you're right, I don't care what the Bible says, the argument's over. That's why I want to remind you, I'm just the messenger telling you what the Bible says here. Because it's uncomfortable to an American mindset. You mean I have to maybe give up something? Jesus says, heck no, you got to give up everything. Everything. The good news is, if you study this and understand, he's not saying literally to get saved today, you got to write out a check and give away all your money, and then you got to take your clothes and give me up. No, he's saying you better hold on to everything else so loosely that you're willing to let it go, if I would ask you to. 
That's what he means. Everything else. I'm ready to lay down my life. I'm ready to walk away from my job if that's what he asks. Do I need a big house? I can walk away from that if that's what he asks. You know what? If I have to drive a 57 Chevy that's all rusted out, that's okay. I don't care. Some of you would like that better. (laughs) But that's the point. Just hold on to it loosely is all he's saying. Just be ready to give it away. Now, I want to be really clear because salvation is free. And here I am talking about this costly discipleship. That's the, the title of the message, you know. Discipleship is costly. Being a Christian is costly. Becoming one is free. And I want to make sure we get that in our mind. This is not about works. There's an illustration I read in a magazine called Discipleship, Cost of Discipleship, by a guy, Stephen Cole. And any of us could have made up a, an illustration like this, but it's such a good one about something that's free but yet very costly. Suppose you or I decided, you know what, I, I'm kind of an adventurer. I'd like to climb Mount Everest. So I'd just say, yeah, I think I'm going to do that. And I go online and I decide it's going to cost about $120,000 for me to prepare to climb Mount Everest. Like, shoot. Better erase that from my bucket list. That one can't happen. And then some wealthy millionaire hears about your desire to, to, to climb Mount Everest, and they says, whatever it costs, I'll cover it. I'll pay for your transportation and flight. I'll pay for all your clothes and all your gear. I'll play, pay, pray, play, pay, play and pray were in there. Pay. I'll pay for everything. The guides that are going to take you up the mountain, the camps, everything. I'll pay for it all. It's free, like salvation. Except now, I've got to start training. I've got to start working. Because even well-trained professional climbers die on Mount Everest every year. So I've got to work. I've got to work out. I've got to train. I've got to put in. The cost is still amazing. But it's free. This is what a Christian life is like. Salvation is a free gift of grace. We receive it by faith. You can't earn it. But Jesus is telling his group of followers, he's trying to give them a heads up early in the game. He's saying, it's tough to walk this thing out. It's tough to be committed to me completely. It's tough. But commitment's what he's looking for. And we need to understand the reality is we will all fail no matter how committed we are at times. We will fail. And he's a loving, patient God. He knows that already. But what he's looking at is a truly committed person is not going to continually choose to do the same things over and over and over knowing it's wrong. In moments of weakness, vulnerability, we mess up. Temptations come, we can mess up. Peer pressure is intense, we can mess up. That doesn't mean we're not totally committed. It means we blew it. And we repent. Because we are totally committed. We repent. And we get back in the right place with God. In Luke 14, verse 28, continuing on, he says, But don't begin until you count the cost. Don't begin. Don't begin building until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? 
Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone will laugh at you. And they would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. There's the person who says they're a Christian. Look what they just did. They're Christians. Yeah, right. Christians don't live like that. Not real ones. The world even knows what real Christians are supposed to live like. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 10,000 or 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. You cannot become my disciple. God, he keeps saying that. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Hold it loosely. He gives two illustrations here, building the building and going to war. But there's one key point. And the point is simply, just as it's wise and absolutely necessary when you're going to do something like this to make an informed decision, you should count the cost. Cost Count the cost in building a building. Count the cost before you go to war, before you jump in. It's necessary. It's wise to count the cost. That's one of the the small issues I have with, oh, you want to be a Christian? Just pray this prayer. You'll feel better. Bow your head. You say the prayer. Nobody counted the cost there. You're not doing them justice by telling them that it's that easy. It is a gift. It is free. But you need to tell them what's coming so they're ready and prepared because it's a battle. He says, you cannot become my disciple. You don't want half-hearted Blind commitments that will not stand the test of adversity. Well, so far the sermon's a little heavy. Go ahead and play this little video to make this point. We'll lighten it up maybe a little. You sure about this? I want everyone to know who I love. How much is this again? Fifty. 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 Hmm. All I got is forty-one. <laughs> Come on! I'll get it fixed, Donna! Very funny. I love that. That was a Visa commercial, if you're wondering what that was about. Some of you have probably seen it before. But the point is, something even there, I mean, you can still burn off a tattoo, you can still change it, you can still fix it. But, you know, think it through, count the cost. And that's what Jesus is just saying here. I know you're all excited, you like my new teaching, it's caught your ear. You're pretty impressed by a few miracles, and you like it when I feed you. Count the cost. Count the cost. If you're not willing to let go of everything, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. You can't be a Christian. Amen. It's about commitment. Jesus wants fully committed followers. And remember, giving up everything isn't about having to become a monk somewhere with no material belongings. It's about being willing to let go of whatever he calls you to do. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must be committed to him above everything else. That's his message that's getting repeated over and over and over. To be my disciple, you must be committed to me above everything else. In verse 34 and 35, he finishes this section up with reinforcing it. He says, salt is good seasoning. 
But if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pit. It's thrown away. And then he says, anyone with ears should hear and understand. Now, for us, salt, you know, what's the big deal? Well, back in those days, salt was a big deal. Matter of fact, it was of such value. In a lot of places, it was used as trade. Instead of money, salt. I'll trade this much salt for this. Because it was good for, it was used as a preservative. It was used as a flavoring. And actually, it was used for fertilizer in the soils of their day. So it was something. But this, this point that Jesus is making isn't about salt. The salt represents commitment. Commitment is the salt. If because of impurities the salt loses its saltiness, he's saying, what good is that salt? Still looks like salt. Walks like salt. Smells like salt. But it's not salt anymore because it's got no taste. Commitment. There's lots of people that talk like Christians, might even do some things that look like Christians, but Jesus is saying, if you're not committed to me above everything else, you're not a Christian. You're not a disciple of mine. And boy, when I start thinking in my own life all the things that I don't want to give up. Now, I'm not saying you have to give up everything. But there are things that the Holy Spirit puts on his finger on in your life. And when he puts his finger on that thing, you go, really? I've done so good over here. Look all I've sacrificed for you already. I went through all this persecution and abuse and quit my job. And oh boy, what was me? And he's like, who cares? He says, all I want is everything. Will you give that thing up? And he's saying, if you can't, you won't, you can't be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus, you need to be committed to him above everything else. The last sentence in that verse I just read, he who has ears to hear should listen and understand. Basically what he's saying is, if you have ears to hear, do it. This is a simple, simple message to hear. It's a really, really, really hard message to live out. Easy to understand. Difficult to accept. When you go through this section of Scripture, and you know, this isn't the only place Jesus talked like this. You can go into the other Gospels. You can find other places. He talked the same way. You know, this is one weird preacher, this Jesus guy. Most of us in our culture, every preacher's got at least, this is on their goal list somewhere. I want a big crowd. Draw them in. We want all kinds of people to come. Jesus has got this huge crowd follow him, and he stops and says, wait a minute. If you guys aren't ready to walk away from everything, you can't even follow me. You're not my disciples. He's trying to drive them away because he wants committed followers, sold-out followers. He did not die for the lukewarm. He died for the committed followers. So he's saying, if you have ears to hear this message, understand it and do it. The question really isn't, is am I able to follow Jesus completely? Because we aren't. We aren't. We're still humans. We still have that sin nature. We still sin. Most of us have already sinned today. We do it all the time. 
So the question isn't, you know, am I able to follow Jesus completely? The question should be this, am I willing to follow Jesus completely? Am I willing to? When I mess up, am I willing to say, oh Lord, I have messed up, please forgive me, I want to follow you. Lord, I I know I've got this issue in my life, I, I repent of it, help me to overcome it, I want to follow you. He is interested in, are we willing? Is our heart in the right place? Are we totally committed to him? He's not asking you and me to be perfect. Only Christ was perfect. And the good news is, God the Father looks at us through Jesus Christ, his son, and he sees us in his righteousness and his perfection. Following Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must be committed to him above everything else. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for each one of us here, myself especially, that we're probably not so different than the people you were talking to. We hear these, these words of yours, and it's a little bit unnerving, a little bit scary. I, hope you, I, hope, I pray that you would help us to grab hold and know that it's the least we can do for someone who died for us. God, you died that we might be free of the things of this world. You tell us in your word that this is not our real home, that we are just travelers, sojourners here, that our real home is in heaven with you. I pray you would give us that heavenly perspective. Lord, I pray also in the name of Jesus that the enemy could not use anything that I've said here this morning to distract or take anybody away from their faith in any way. That there would be no condemnation, but conviction. And grant us repentance in those areas of our lives where we need to repent. I thank you that you want followers. And you bless your followers. You promise to never leave nor forsake your followers. That you will walk with us through anything that life brings our way. God, we thank you that you love us that much. I pray now, Lord, you would bless each one as we go our different directions, guide our footsteps, give us words to say as you promise, provide those divine opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.